Hi, I'm Shelley Haynes. Hi, I'm Samantha Haynes, and this is Overlooks History and Colour. And what are we doing today? Today we're talking about Matthew Alexander Henson, a black explorer who was a prolific traveller of the Arctic between 1890 and 1910, alongside a man called Robert Edwin Peary, who unfortunately would get most of the recognition and the credit for this. So do you know anything about him? I know that he didn't get the credit he deserved and that was pretty much... Yeah. I knew he was an explorer and I knew that he was kind of like... A, a lot like um, most of the Native Americans that were helping the, the whites travel across America, like... Um, what are the names? You, you, Lewis and Clark. Okay, yeah. A lot of them just didn't get their, uh, the credit for basically keeping them alive. Well, there are some um, interesting names in this, uh, interesting from the perspective of me trying to pronounce those names, so that's going <laughs> to be fun. Um, and the dates are just wild. I've looked at tons of articles and there's different dates in all of them and so I mean some of this may be incorrect but I've done my best to kind of verify uh, as far as possible dates and things and um, just put in stuff the most pertinent and interesting information because there's, there's so much um, so much information they went on seven Arctic expeditions together and spent uh, the best part of 20 years traveling the Arctic alongside each other uh, mostly attributed to Peary, but in sort of recent decades it's become clear that Henson was really the brains and certainly the um, was able to keep them alive because he knew how to um, he, he was a survivalist basically and yeah he was he was the the background <laughs> yeah and Robert Edwin Peary was a posh white man which soft sweaty white man that's always what happens diminishes him because he had a distinguished career in the navy but he certainly relied very heavily on um to henson to achieve a lot of the things that he achieved the first thing to say i guess is that uh they are both or were known for a time as the first people to reach the geographic north pole that would later be disputed and it's a kind of complicated story that is sort of uh, hilarious when you find out what actually happened um, but yeah I won't spoil it uh, so historically Matthew Alexander Henson was talked about referenced as an aide uh, the word manservant was used a lot um, it doesn't seem like that recognises his uh, contributions um, fully. Yeah, well, it's relegating him to definitely a side character, if that, kind of, because it's not even like his sidekick, it's his butler or his, you know, helper man. Yeah. But today he is known for being one of the first to reach the North Pole and for um, contributing to the mapping of much of the um, Arctic uh, in the area around Greenland. Matthew Alexander Henson was born on August the 8th in 1866 in Charles County, Maryland. 
So this was less than a year after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the US. So we're talking about, uh, obviously, a time of uh, great tragedy and strife for black people in America. It is kind of mad when you realize how much stuff is kind of concertina down into such a small amount of history because it feels like so much of this stuff should have happened ages ago you know what i mean when you're just like oh yeah. all this because the first thing i thought of when you said that was oh randian was born in 1871 so it wasn't that long after that and to think of these as kind yeah. of contemporary it's just weird but anyway sorry well i try to wear relevant anyway so think about how <laughs> the uh, Civil War in America is is that big sort of milestone yeah. for many of these stories. So that helps to ground them for me. If I think about how long, how long before or how long after that happened, it sort of helps to give a general picture of, of what the mood was, I guess, what, what sort of stuff was happening. Everything just feels kind of concentrated to these key points in history, I guess. So when um, Henson was born, the act had been passed, but obviously uh, they were on their way to um, civil war. Matthew Henson's parents um, were called Lemuel Henson, and his mum was Carolyn. We don't really know much about her, as again, quite common, actually. Um, so they were free black people who made their living as sharecroppers on a farm that they owned just east of the Potomac River. So we know that they owned their farm because uh, they sharecropping, you rent it out to people to use, so they owned some land. And it wasn't all that unusual in this uh, part of the country, in Maryland, for black people to be free, even though slavery would actually last for 200 years in total in the state. And it would be one of the major producers um, of slaves because they had um, lots and lots of tobacco fields, tobacco plantations. But it seems to have occupied this sort of strange place where they had all of these plantations and they were uh, using all of these slaves and making all of this money. But a lot of people had quite, I don't know whether progressive is the right word, but a lot of the uh, people that weren't landowners and weren't plantation owners were mixing with uh, the black people that lived among them and most of them agreed with abolishing slavery and that is the reason why Maryland would stay in the as part of the union and there would be only a sort of small rebellion from, from the landowners. I wonder how sort of prevalent that was because obviously there was enough of an outspoken majority that there was this you know need for a civil war but as we know from the current terrible situation we're in now it's usually those with the most money that are making the most noise and you don't really hear the yeah. kind of majority that are and you don't have enough power to scream from the rooftops yeah and the, it's the people with money uh, in this case that are probably propping up the local economy, um, most likely. So you, yeah. you've got this weird situation where you're indebted to uh, slavery and you, it's very difficult to just uh, draw the line, I guess, from an economic perspective. So there were, there were free black people in Maryland 
and you again you have this strange dichotomy between um, people being able to live free, some people, small percentage, and some of the worst sort of violence and um, prejudicial treatment also happening in the same state. So Maryland also passed a law um, called uh, the Law of Perpetual Slavery, which made these children of slaves the legal property of the owner before they were born, basically. I've, I've heard of that before. I don't know, it's one of those things that you kind of forget about because yeah. you're just like so focused on the ones that were actually in slavery at that time that you kind of, your brain is so full up with that you can't even think, oh, what about the future generations that were already condemned to it? Mm -hmm. Have Have you read um, Beloved, Toni Morrison? Yeah, a long time ago now. I don't know if it's that in particular, but, but that idea of like her, her children not even being... No. her own property i mean that is it's kind a, of such a huge part of that's the book. a weird sort of um unfathomable uh violence in a way without without having to involve any sort of uh physical violence do you know what i mean it's it's literally the sort of the most boiled down molasses thick version of dehumanization yeah, you've got the, to the effect that like your own offspring isn't even yours. So yeah, there's nothing even beyond you. There is no sort of hope. There's there's nothing. Uh, it's awful. It's really awful. Um, so when we imagine some of the worst horrors done to slaves in the 18th and 19th century, we're picturing places like Maryland, which is why is a surprise that it was to me to also find out that Maryland had the largest population of free black people of any state in America by 1860. Wow. So uh, over a century from uh, around about 18, uh, sorry, 1755 to 1860, the percentage of free black people rose from 1% to 49%. And that is uh, at least in part due to the fact that lots of black people were recruited to the American Revolutionary War against the British. Um, thousands mm. of black men were enlisted with the promise of freedom afterwards. And the promise wasn't always kept, but in a lot of cases it was. So you start to get this um, population, growing population of free black people who are living, uh, having children who are also free. So the population is, uh, is growing. But we've talked about that idea of kind of history repeating itself. And that just immediately made me think of um, after the First World War and the Second World War when specifically the Second World War, when there was, you know, African-Americans that were going out to fight and coming back to a country where they were being, you know, completely, um, like, having racist attacks and yeah. things, and they were just like, how, how have we just come back from fighting oppression to come back to, you know, our, our own oppression? Exactly. And it's, it baffles the mind to, it's, it's, it's so... So you've got, you've got both, both of those sort of attitudes happening uh, in this same place. A lot of people are completely happy, particularly after um, these, a lot of black men had fought in the, in the Revolutionary War, perfectly happy for these people to be given their freedom and to live among them. And then you start um, seeing uh, white people having relationships with black people and people mixing and in 
a lot of circles it, it really it wasn't you know uh, this huge deal yet slavery was a problem of the economy um, but there was um, sorry no there was a lot of um, who do you think you are when there's been quite a few people who have found out that their uh, their black uh, descendants owned slaves. Yeah, that's and a difficult it, one, isn't it? That's, yeah. yeah, how do you wrap your head around that? Well, I was listening to um, Louis Theroux has just started a podcast in lockdown, and he did one with Lenny Henry, Ooh. and he talks about the fact that he started his career in a minstrel show, and how that what? has sort of... Um, how his opinions towards that have changed, how his family viewed it. Um, he doesn't feel any sort of uh, particular shame about it, and I think that's, that's fine, obviously. Um, yeah. But it's interesting to say that his, his family, he said, were, when he looks back on it now, sort of visibly uncomfortable, but this was the way that um, the money came in, and he was able to look after them and buy his uh, mum and his siblings things but he was in this this minstrel show with other people in blackface uh, which is you know it's, it's str a strange sort of um, idea I think yeah but you kind of said it perfectly there as well like it's like that's how the money came in how many times and, and still to this day how many times will people of color have to say that to just get through a shitty experience yeah. You see it to a, a much lesser degree, I think, but still to a degree with um, a lot of people of colour in Hollywood that take sort of the stereotypical parts. Mm. I know like actors like Terry Crews have sort of talked about how they felt they had to, well, take the parts that were there for them, you know, which was like angry black guy. Yeah, and I know a lot, a lot of... Um, now at least that's getting a little better, but still. A lot of black uh, female actresses talk about that, don't they? They're angry black woman. Um, yeah. Says common role uh, so yeah uh, I keep talking about this kind of weird dichotomy but uh, I think it's very interesting so you're, you're sort of getting these laws passed um, the law of perpetual slavery laws limiting what they called manumission which was giving slaves their freedom but at the same time it is happening and people are doing it and it's becoming um, relatively common for people to own slaves and to give them their freedom after a certain number of years or to have promised them their freedom once they died which I get it, it doesn't make it better but it was it's better than some of the other black people that were in worse circumstances so uh, interestingly changes in technology and uh, the move towards less labour intensive farming methods uh, supports and increases this um, rate of manumission so more people being freed because you don't need so many people uh, on the plantations, on the farms. There's more mixed uh, race children about as a result of some uh, interracial relationships, but also, of course, uh, sexual violence against um, mm -hmm. black women who may have then been freed. So by the time of the Civil War, most people in the state supported the uh, abolition of slavery and Maryland did remain in the Union. So. Although it sounds kind of unusual that Henson's parents were free folks who owned land. Not that unusual, actually. They were likely the children of uh, slaves who had been freed. Um, 
Yeah. Before the Civil War. So, in many ways, he was born into as close to kind of ideal conditions as possible for the time period. Um, even though it feels kind of shitty to say that, <laughs> because obviously it's still, yeah. it's still not great. But he was born free, he was born on their farm. So he had an older sister who was two when he was born, um, and the family wouldn't stay on the farm for long. When he was barely a year old in 1867, they moved because their farm kept being attacked by the KKK and by disgruntled landowners who weren't happy about the fact that slavery was being abolished and they didn't agree with it and they hated these free black folks. So they would attack their farm, they would uh, try to scare them, try to run them out and they had to move. Um, they moved all the way to Georgetown in Washington DC to be in a safer place and, and for their children to be in a safer place. So they moved to Georgetown which as a sort of area is, is close to the heart of the Union and this movement because obviously it's Washington DC. Uh, slavery is still very much present. There's kind of that cultural belief that it was South bad, North good and it's like yeah. no, it was a lot more grey. It was better. I can understand why why mm. they would make the move. But the most um, famous example of the fact that it was still extremely dangerous to be a free a black person mm -hmm. is Solomon Northrup, who was a free man and was still kidnapped and taken into slavery, kidnapped from Washington, D.C. So it, it happened and, um, you know, you, you could be taken, regardless of what papers you've been given or, or you know, whatever. So um, they moved and they had two more daughters and then sadly, as seems to be the case in all of these stories, his mother died <laughs> when he was uh, two years old. The mum always dies. I couldn't um, find out what, but yeah, she, she died when he was very young. Um, his um, childhood and up to his teenage years are really sort of uncertain. The information's all over the place. We know that his father remarried and he had several more children, so he had uh, some half-siblings. Um, his father died when he was eight, probably uh, in around 1874. And then various biographies on Matthew Henson say that he was sent to live with a generous uncle who paid for him to attend school. Um, Henson himself says that this is bullshit. He would write a uh, memoir um, much later in his life and, and he disputes this and he says he ran away because his stepmother was abusive. He says that he ran away at 11 and um, moved into sort of central Washington DC on his own. So it's likely that he did have some education but probably only up until the sixth grade. So he was on his own um, in the big city and he was working immediately so it's probably unlikely that there was this sort of um, mysterious benefactor taking care of him. Well it's it's not uncommon in sort of around this time for in quote-unquote documentary writing and quote-unquote documentaries I mean the, the first film that's kind of hailed as a documentary is Nanook of the North which was fake oh like yeah 90 of, of it was yeah. fake and guess who it was who was their subject matter you know an Inuit man who another person from a minority who mm -hmm. they just made up complete nonsense about and th there is kind of this weird habit of 
these quote-unquote documentary texts about people of color or people from minorities as, where they're kind of made out to be the plucky young you know scamp who yeah. made it through and it's like no <laughs> what? don't try and disneyfy their life it was tough this sort of uh, benefactor happy happy nothing's the problem story is repeated so many times and then i found this sort of stuff about him stated in his biography no this in his autobiography this isn't uh, so i decided that that must be the most likely so um he got a job washing dishes at a cafe when he was very young um that was frequented by sailors and he spent a lot of time listening to their sort of stories um about life on the high seas and grew love for the romance of being on the, the sea i guess and this is where his interest in uh, sailing first developed so uh, at this time there were a growing uh, number of free black sailors and he was lucky to be exposed to a lot of um, positive experiences of blackness whilst he was a child. So one of the most um, important moments in his life happened at uh, 12 when he attended a speech given by the very famous civil rights activist Frederick Douglass um, yeah. and he in this speech urged black people to actively fight systems of oppression so uh, this must have been a hugely influential moment at 12 years old uh, at the same age at 12 he travels back to um, Maryland and he looks for work on a ship uh, port in Baltimore he's hired by um, the merchant ship Katie Hines which is captained by a skipper called Captain Childs who took to him almost immediately and spent the next few years on the ship teaching him how to read and write. Um, so this was a really good first experience. It, it sounds like he was kind of very aware having that uh, opportunity to see Frederick Douglass so early. I think that was probably possibly one of those turning points in, in people's lives like there was the um, turning point in Bessie Smith's life when she met Ma Rainey maybe the rest of her life wouldn't have been the same if that moment hadn't happened I feel the same kind of about about that that could really change your life I think yeah it it makes you realize how important those it might have only been a little thing but how hugely impactful that is and how much of an impact the fact that people didn't have that until after mm -hmm. kind of yeah. the you know the abolition of slavery people didn't have and it really does make you realize how important role models from minorities are even to this day well, it's interesting that um he, he did run away from his family so he he didn't feel comfortable or safe there but he's sort of fallen into these situations where he's around that are quite inspiring black figures so he's meeting these black sailors he's uh, attending these civil rights speeches and uh, you know maybe it's his blind look that he ends up in these places but uh, yeah as a child um, becoming a teenager I think that would have a, a very positive uh, impact on you as you said he was kind of on his own at this time that means he's going he's actively kind of searching this out himself as well though like surely it's a very huge impact to see someone like Frederick Douglass but it's how did he get there to see it in the first place was it something he actively seeked out that is a, a kind of an interesting question to 
I, I doubt we'll <laughs> doubt he's gonna you know have written it down well, somewhere. I'd, like I specifically decided. What but, I do you know, know about I mean? about that speech is it was given at an an event to celebrate the life of um, Abraham Lincoln, who had recently been assassinated. So he clearly had some awareness or some pull towards already there's lots of um, moments in this where he could have fallen into much worse circumstances um yeah so he's, he's ended up on this ship and this captain childs who was a, a white man uh, has taught him all this stuff that he needs to know like uh, would he have learned how to read and write otherwise so he's um on the ship he's working as a cabin boy he's getting the education that he has missed or that he didn't get at home and he travels to china japan france africa southern russia and the philippines so by the age of 19 he's he's traveled all over the world nice. uh sadly <laughs> people always die in these stories <laughs> uh captain child who he spent all this time with very dear to him falls ill at sea and he dies in uh, 1885 and he leaves the boat because he's in absolute sort of abject sorrow mm. and he doesn't want to uh, stay on that boat with a different skipper. So he's an adult now and he gets a job on a fishing schooner, I think is the word, okay. schooner, uh, headed for Newfoundland. Um, and this is really the first time in his life that he ends up without this sort of accidental or intentional protection mm. from somebody. And the crew are horrible to him, they racially mistreat him, um, the captain is cruel to him, the ship is dirty, uh, there's sickness everywhere, and they clearly didn't want him there. So he, he has a terrible experience there and he leaves, he gets up in Canada and he travels back to um, Baltimore, uh, which isn't in a great situation either. Uh, there's lots and lots of tensions between black people and white people uh, because now everybody's competing for the same jobs and again it leads to attacks against black people and uh, so just because uh, slavery has been abolished it, it doesn't necessarily improve people's lives or, or mean that you know these black people are welcomed uh, with open arms to live among uh, the whiteies. <laughs> no, that's the thing it constantly goes back to it's like slavery was abolished and people automatically think yay things are better and it's like to a very small degree read anything after that and you realize the law might have changed but there was so much that was the same but it creates new yeah. new problems i guess new um, obstacles to try and work your way around so uh, there was a, a definite lack of jobs um promises were being made by the unionists that, that they weren't keeping and people blamed black people um so lots lots of attacks lots of violence uh, Henson could only find um, the most sort of menial work, but he got a job as a clerk in a clothing store called B.H. Steinmetz and Sons. Um, he hated it, uh, unsurprisingly, and he struggled with the idea that this might be it. This might be him for the rest of his life, so he felt quite hopeless. But he was a really hard worker, and the owner, Steinmetz, he liked him. He had a great work ethic, and they got along very well. So in the winter of 1887, uh, when he was uh, around 21, a young naval officer called Robert Edwin Peary came into the store um, looking for a hat. And Steinmetz, 
knowing that um, Henson had this uh, all of this seafaring experience gave him a, a good recommendation and chalked him up. Oh, that's a blessing. <laughs> so um, before he knew that, that this had happened and he'd given, given him this uh, recommendation, he'd already impressed him by um, you know showing him around the shop and being helpful and helping him pick out these hats. And he offered him a job as his personal aide. So it's um, about 21 at this time. Here he is about 31 years old. He's sort of already distinguished mm. um, Navy officer. And he's, yeah, he's saying, do you want to come and travel with me and be my sort of valet, basically? Which yeah. isn't, isn't a bad job, I would say. Well, yeah, I suppose, because it sounds like the only reason he kind of got out of that career initially was just because he had that poor experience with the fishing schooner and because he, he kind of tied it back to the loss of his immediate protector after his family, I guess. So he is valet, but um, or manservant, if you like. But it's also he's been offered this position based on the fact that he has all of this experience and skill, and and the uh, fact he's a good worker. Clearly, yeah, he's an accomplished uh, guy. So um, I'll talk about uh, Robert Edwin Peary for a little while because really the sort of heart of this story is the relationship between them two because they they spent such a long time together. It was eighteen years they spent travelling. Um, the Arctic together from this sort of meeting, they would then spend the next 18 years together, working together, traveling together, and as some people would say, you know, best friends or um, very close mm. companions. Others would say maybe not so much, but um, so Robert Edwin Peary was a, a white man, so very different um, background, very different upbringing. Robert Edwin Peary was born in 1856 in Pennsylvania. Uh, much more privileged background, but like Henson, he ex experienced tragedy quite young. At three, his father had died, so he's lost a family member, so sort of similar age, and his family moved to Portland, Maine. So unlike Henson, he was white, he was from a privileged background, very well educated. He attended Bowdoin Liberal Arts College and studied civil engineering and belonged to all the, you know, the fraternities and the sort of posh people stuff. He was a valued member of the rowing team. Alpha, Kappa, um, Gamma, or Omegas, all, yeah, all, <laughs> all them ones. In uh, 1881, when he was about 25, he joined the Navy as a civil engineer, and he spent uh, some time producing geological surveys, mapping the uh, hills and mountains of Maine. So from 1881 to 1885, he was assistant engineer, then head engineer, producing surveys for the Nicaragua Canal. Mm. Um, in 1885, we have the first evidence of this, what will become a lifelong obsession with discovering the North Pole. Um, for the rest of his life, he would be obsessed with being the first. They were really, there. like, they got really obsessed about it. Whenever you read any of these stories about these um, explorers, they, they, they were never a passing fancy. No. <laughs> they were well, like head yeah. to knee, toe, feet obsessed with. And I suppose they had to because without a doubt they were going to come across a lot of like danger and just awfulness in, in most well, of when them. When you've got all of the money you need and all of the opportunities you need, you can have the sort of freedom and the time to be like. 
yeah, I dedicate myself to this completely sort of uh, unrealistic sounding goal whilst everybody else is just trying to survive. Yeah, but a, a lot of it wasn't... They were obviously the rich people that had the ability to kind of just jaunt off to wherever they wanted to. But, he, like, whole countries were obsessed with the idea, like, finding the uh, the n- Northwest Passage, was it? Was, like, a obsession for countries that were like, it's, we're going to um, find it, we're going to find it. Prestige, isn't it? Same with, like, the space race. It's all, we're better than you, we're the dominant... Uh, power I guess um, yeah which a lot of it was just kind of throwing people into a meat grinder let's be honest it's just men being doing ridiculous <laughs> obsessive Bros being those not, not to attack men but this is how <laughs> we've got into this uh, state not that discovering the Arctic and, and all you know being explorers yeah. is not important but it mostly was about being better than the other <laughs> countries, I think. Being, we did it, you didn't. Yeah. So, um, in 1886, uh, Robert Edwin Peary wrote a paper for the National Academy of Sciences outlining his um, proposal for how you could cross uh, Greenland's ice cap and determine if it was an island, because nobody really knew this at the time. So this was his kind of uh, next project. He spent six months on leave from the Navy, trekking across the Arctic, trying to cross Greenland by dog sled. He didn't make it, <laughs> but he did achieve the second farthest penetration of the Greenland ice sheet um, before he was forced to turn back for lack of food. I was going to say, did he eat his dogs? Because a lot of them ate their dogs. <laughs> well, there's some dog eating here. Yeah. Yep. Um, brief mentions of dog eating. <laughs> we warning have, we this podcast may contain yeah, it's a warning. brief message I will be referring doggy to doggy. Um, so in 1887 he returned to Washington to work on the Nicaraguan Canal before leaving for Nicaragua he needed a sun hat and this is where the two stories join so he uh, goes to uh, Steinmetz and that's where he meets uh, Peary in 1887 so as soon as he hears about his years at sea, he hires him on the spot, as we know. Um, they would sail to Nicaragua first with a small crew of uh, four others where they worked on the canal. Peary was so impressed with Henson's skills and professionalism that he asked him um, to go on his next expedition to the Arctic. And he told him all about this um, dream to reach the North Pole and sort of let him in to this world. He's got a hell of a CV, <laughs> like, for being as young as he kind of was at this time, and again, from a background that wasn't terrible for the time, but he, he wasn't in any way, you know, hugely privileged either, and yet he's he's kind of racking up them, like, good jobs. Yeah, and um, it's interesting that you say that, because this sort of makes, it complicates when you get to the end of the story and you look at what was this relationship between the two of them um, mm. was it a sort of uh, dependence and one person using the other person or was it a friendship because it, it does seem a sort of uh, absurd to boil a professional uh, relationship particularly in the Arctic in these conditions it wasn't like they were working mm. at a shop um, for 20 years they had to have had a real friendship, I think. They had to have had something there, some yeah. deep trust. Um, because, as as you said earlier, he when he figured out that he wasn't he wasn't in the 
fishing schooner life with the dickheads on that boat, he quickly was like, I'm out. Yes. So why would he have stuck with him for 20 years? Well, there's a... I suppose it could be his own personal ambition to want to actually achieve that as well, along with Peary's ambition to, to be, you know, the first man or... I think we can, I think we can um, sort of agree that Henson, why wouldn't you? These are great opportunities, so he's going to take the job. Um, he yeah, likes being at sea. From Peary's perspective, it sort of gets a little bit more complicated later. His motives are definitely questioned in hindsight, but some of those things mm. did. Anyway, so um, they returned from uh, working in Nicaragua uh, to America in 1889. Uh, Henson briefly moves to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, because Peary gets him a job as a messenger uh, naval yard. He settles down for a brief amount of time, um, meets a woman called Ava Flint. They spend two years together and then they get married on April 16th, 1891. And only a few months later, he's like, um, sorry love, I'm going on an expedition <laughs> to the Arctic. Um, <laughs> she's not overjoyed about that. They haven't had much time together as newlyweds. This would become a running theme of their marriage and a source of lots of tension between the two. So uh, within the first few months of their marriage, um, in 1891, he's gone already. He's um, off on this first big expedition to the Arctic, which is actually um, Peary's second attempt, but the first one, obviously, that they're going to go on together. So this will be the start of their constant uh, attempts to reach the North Pole. So Henson joins Peary's 1891 attempt to trek across Greenland. They have this sort of uh, running objective where he's trying to determine whether it is an island or not, or whether he can uh, continue and what, what lays beyond that. So obviously we know that it, it is an island. And they would uh, take a, the longer and more dangerous route in his uh, earlier proposal from Whale Sound, which is a channel running close to the Inglefield Fjord Glacier, Near the uh, oh, that old that old chestnut uh, to the top of it could be anywhere. No, it's it's on the Inglefield Fjord Glacier. I just told you in Greenland. <laughs> uh, I'm so sorry. To the top of Baffin Bay and then north to see if the land continued across the Arctic or stopped to the sea. The hope was that they could go all the way to the North Pole there. Uh, spoiler, no, uh, it was an island, so <laughs> they couldn't do that. The trip was funded, very well funded, by the American Geographic Society, the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences, and the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences. So he's got a lot of money behind him. Uh, like you said, the people are investing huge amounts in, in these um, voyages of exploration because it comes with a lot of prestige, I guess, when, when you, you come back and you're the first to have discovered this, you're the first to have been here. Well, most of it was just trade. They were just after new trading ways of um, trying to cut out time that people would have to spend on board because the, the faster you get products to the consumers or the factories, the faster people are buying. That's kind of... Yeah. I, I prefer to think it's a... Well, maybe a better <laughs> empire-based dominion. Northwest no, Passage, that's what they were looking for, so that they, it was for trade. Oh. That, that they just wanted to open up quicker trade. Into context, some of the sort of horrible shit that they did, I guess, later. 
Um, so <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble of like grand people sat with their cigars and their brandy going, oh, if only we were rich, we'd we'll be the kings of kings. <laughs> we're all best friends here. <laughs> the of the Shake color my hand, skin. let's find the Arctic. So the crew included um, Piri Henson as his personal manservant. A surgeon, a skier, a bird expert, an ethnologist, uh, a marksman, because I guess there's like polar bears and shit. Uh, well, they didn't know what were up there. Well, really, I did mean, they? good for them that they took a bloody marksman then. Uh, a weatherman and a mineralogist. Peary would also take his dietitian wife along, and the press would mock him mercilessly for doing this, actually, <laughs> for taking his wife along on the expedition. Um, uh, well, I did make a face when you said that. I was sort of like, I mean, good for his wife getting to, you know, do some, some finding out what's going on in the Seems like north. a weird, sort of, uh, weirdly modern profession dietitian. It does, doesn't it? But then you think back to all the, like, stupid cures yeah. and health cures that they came up with, and you're like, oh, they've been doing a lot of things. They, they might have been called dietitian, but I doubt they were as effective as actual dietitians. If you can eat something, just eat it. Uh, this week yeah, I, but a lot of people have died from doing that. I have mostly been eating snow. <laughs> That's what I'd be like. Um, so the expedition... I think I've gone blind. <laughs> the expedition left on June the 6th, 1891, on a seal hunting ship called the SS Kite. Just a few weeks later, Henson would prove his value in a big way as the SS Kite struggled to break through sheets of surface ice, the iron tiller span and smacked Peary in the legs. Uh, two bones between his knee and his ankle snapped. So not a good I was going to say, start. did it kneecap him? Uh, <laughs> Pretty not, much. Not good. They're very far from home. Um, he's determined that they're not just going to sail back home because he's uh, not full, not full, not full. This, this is what we need to do. So he's uh, no question that they're going to um, return. Uh, they get off their boat. Um, Henson builds a camp to keep them all from dying in the bloody snow. At the mouth of the McCormack Ford, I know you love these fjords. Oh, my favourite fjord. They would spend six months there while Peary recovered, while his, uh, wow. his leg recovered. And during this time, Henson ran the camp, basically, in all but name. Um, he taught the party members how to hunt, how to use animal furs to survive, he learned how to drive a dog sled, and most importantly, he connected with uh, the Greenlander Inuits in the area. And again, this would be the beginning of quite a long and very positive relationship with, with the uh, native Inuits in the area, who came to absolutely adore him. They loved him. Aww, I like that. that was I like the idea that they had like a, a buddy dumb. So uh, he's right from the very first expedition. He's making these positive connections and he's learning all of this stuff, uh, the dog sledding and the hunting and the uh, they're teaching him and he's becoming extremely skilled. So reports of Henson's uh, encounters, these first encounters anyway, aren't all that detailed. Uh, he didn't talk about it. Uh, a lot throughout his life. He's quite a private man, but we know that uh, he, he learned all of these uh, skills from them. He spent a lot of time with them and he would constantly seek their expertise on future um, Arctic expeditions and journeys. So in his um, autobiography, a Negro explorer at the North Pole, his uh, title, not mine. Um, <laughs> I didn't think you titled it as that. 
What was its actual name, Samantha? What did you um, What did you do to that book? Henson says, um, many and many a time for periods covering more than 12 months I have been to all intents and purposes an Eskimo, with Eskimos for companions, speaking their language, dressing in their clothing. I have come to love these people. I know every man, woman and child in their tribe. They are my friends and they regard me as theirs. So he also learned their language. Um, Peary did uh, help and contribute to this. He had studied Inuit survival techniques in his previous life as a younger man. Peary's wife <laughs> complained about their food and body odour. Uh, way to bring her along. Um, I'm going to say, she's supposed to be a dietitian. But Henson spent as much time with them as possible and they ended up giving him a name. Uh, Mari Paluk. Whiny wife. <laughs> No, it's a nice name, uh, Mari Paluk, which translates as Matthew the Kind One. So this Aww. is a good, uh, good connections, good relationships. Uh, his love for I wonder how yeah. much. Sorry, I wonder how much his uh, experiences. It, it makes me wonder how much sort of those other Arctic um, explorations could have been. Well, him wanting to go improved back. Improved by having someone from a minority as part of them. Because I imagine going into that situation without all that baggage of, without sort of all the pomp of whiteness, thinking that you know what you're doing, thinking that like, I will conquer this land. He was just going in as like, I got a job and I'm here. Yeah. And you know, I'll, I'll t whoever's gonna help us survive out here, great, that's awesome. I think, um, well, it seems very clear that this set them up for uh, many of their future expeditions, allowed him to become this incredibly skilled person who was able to help them survive and uh, achieve all these incredible things. Maybe they wouldn't have gotten there if he hadn't have spent all of this time learning. I mean, uh, they said that, um, their quote does say that he became a better dog sledder than many of us. So. This, these are the essential skills, and, and he's learning the language as uh, well. And his love for the Inuit people and Inuit culture would last his entire lifetime. Um, during his Arctic expeditions, he spent a lot of time with the Inuit women. The both of them, him and Peary, would have uh, romantic relationships and father children with these Inuit women. So Not surprising. Uh, even that is... Um, I guess complex uh, from a modern perspective. Um, yeah, it's not exactly this uh, solely sort of a positive thing. I don't think um, because spoiler, they didn't sort of stick around to raise these children. Um, <laughs> no, really, you shock me. But interestingly, uh, Henson um, mentions both his uh, Inuit lover. He was called Akatingwa. I think that's correct. The son's name is, is harder. Um, he mentions them both in his later autobiography. The son's name is Anaukak. <laughs> that's probably not correct. I'm sure that's <laughs> spot on. But, uh, that's, yeah, that's exactly that's what it was. Um, so um, <laughs> on this expedition uh, in September, uh, they're leading dogs and crew inland onto the ice sheet and they do this thing where they sort of um, progress in um, groups so they split off into multiple groups and then the first group will go out to a certain point 
and they'll um, sort of create a trail and they'll leave uh, supplies and the next group's sort of going further and further if you know what I mean so yeah it's kind of staggering yeah. them so it's not just going out as one big so group and then your end destination something goes wrong yeah, the, the end sort of stretch not everybody would do that you'd only have uh, a small number of people on these expeditions that would go to the goal or whatever the, the objective right at the end uh, but mm-hmm. uh, again you couldn't do it if you didn't have all of these people uh, there uh, creating paths and leaving food along the way and, and all of this stuff so it's very much a team yes yeah, so like effort. setting up relay points that you kind of hit as you're going yeah, on so that's how they did things so they um they're making their way across the ice uh stashing supplies intending to keep traveling to the north pole but they would have to wait until may the next year so they were there a really really long time until Peary was well enough to sort of resume his part in the expedition which uh, clearly he's he's not going to be happy to just allow them to do it uh, in his no place. he had he wants to, to be, plant yeah, the flag he's, he's the guy he's the big big dog <laughs> So um, on May the 3rd, a five-man crew embarked after about 150 miles, uh, Peary and his Swedish skier, Ivund Astrup. They left the others <laughs> and continued on alone. Uh, he was determined to be the first American to reach the North Pole. So a lot of the time he was getting to this sort of final stretch and he's uh, telling everybody else, you go back, he's taking a skeleton crew because he doesn't want any chances of anybody sort of stealing it from him. He had this sort of thing where if he if he could avoid it, he didn't want other Americans there. Um, yeah. He, he wanted to be the first. So after reaching the thousand meter high Navy cliff, they hadn't found the North Pole, but they had answered an important question. Uh, you can't walk over that shit. Uh, Greenland is an island. They returned to the group. They travelled back to camp, uh, travelling a distance of approximately one thousand two hundred fifty miles. Uh, they sailed back home, um, didn't find the North Pole, but they've mapped all of these areas for the first time. So that's very important in sort of geographical mm-hmm. um, way. Uh, Henson wasn't home very long before agreeing to join another expedition. His wife, Lucy, uh, not happy about this. Um, her parents are pissed off as well. They haven't been, uh, hadn't spent much time together since they've been married. So their relationship is, is failing uh, already because um, they just don't see each other so well yeah they got, they got married he went off, off he, she's like he's coming back oh nope there he goes again uh, he's back off to the arctic for uh, his second trip with Peary to continue mapping the ice caps this one was less successful a large number of crewmen developed scurvy and a lot of them almost died they were forced to kill some of their dogs to survive dog eating dog eating dog eating <laughs> we need dog um, eating alarm for this one uh i wasn't going to include this because it's not strictly necessary, but it, it is actually like really sort of important for our topic. Um, the way that they would go on to, particularly Peary, would go on to treat the native people that they uh, met along the way. So on this uh, trip, they came across these huge meteorites in the Cape York area, which is off the northwestern coast of Greenland. Um, close to where there were local people living, those Inuits in the area, uh, Peary immediately makes plans to take these uh, meteorites, which the Inuits have called the Woman, the Rock, and the Ten, and they're huge. They're like, um, they're, I think the smallest one is like half a ton, um, and the bigger ones yeah. are two point five tons. So he works out a way to get them home because he's a mad bastard. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> technical term. And it's this constant sort of uh, specimen, specimens, uh, progress, progress, discovery, discovery, takes effect, stick, you know what I mean? No awareness of the no. fact that he's just like straight up walking in and trying to steal shit that doesn't be- belong to no, him yeah. in any way. I mean, it would later become clear that the Mishraites had special significance for the Inuits. They worshipped them as an offering from the gods, and it was their only source of metal. They would chip into it and take um, the metals from within it. Uh, so it actually had quite a sort of traumatizing effect on their community. Um, but they didn't spend too much time thinking about that. Worse um, was that they would also take six of, of the Inuits back to America with them for the purposes of uh, anthropological studies. They were told yeah. that they would be back within a year. And it's not clear whether they fully understood why they were going over there, but they said, oh, you'll be back within a year, no problem, you know, we'll reward you. Uh, it's the land of the plenty, land of the free. Yeah. So a man Land of yep, opportunity. A man named I'm gonna butcher these names again. Kisuk, uh his young son Minique, a man named Atangana and his wife and daughter and a third man, this is the hardest one, Usa Kathak, uh they sailed back um to America with the crew. The story it didn't end well for them unfortunately. Um Yeah, I I, I immediately winced as soon as you were like they took some Inuits back with them, I was like, this ain't gonna go well. So I'm gonna jump around in time a little bit, just because this sort of happens over a sort of uh, extended period of time. They were warmly welcomed, um, but they was lived, basically they were cared for in a basement of the um, Natural History Museum. Um, within a year, all but two of them had died. The only remaining adult was shipped back off to Greenland, but the young boy, Minuk, was kept for further studies. He was completely traumatised by the fact that his father had died, but the museum wanted to hang on to his father's remains, so they lied to him and told him that they buried his father, but it was a log wrapped in fur. And he wouldn't find out the truth about that until he was much, much, much older, um, a much older adult, and had already um, moved on which is really really sad um that's it like they welcomed them as specimens not as people <laughs> uh, he would be prevented um from going back home i'm not entirely sure on sort of the, the details but i, I guess uh, if you've got no sort of um Resources, yeah, he, then yeah of course you have to stay so he was kept in new york for a further 12 years uh, until he became a threat to peary's reputation because he was scared that he was going to give his story to the press. Um, so he let him go back home in 12 years later, in 1909, specifically to avoid him telling the press that he'd been treated badly. Uh, in the same year, um, the Peary's, him and his wife, sold the meteorites to the Natural History Museum in New York for $40,000, which is equivalent to about 1.1 million today. This is just making me mad. I'm literally, I was about to just be like, how day! The largest one of these meteorites um, has been given the name Anigito and is on display today at um, the museum in New York. No, so I, get, I get mad at this stuff. <laughs> like skipped this. ahead in uh, time a little bit there, but that's sort of um, the, the things that um, Peary was, was doing, as well as achieving all of these amazing sort of exp exploration um, things. So uh, back to um, 1897, they're, they're back in America. Um, Henson and his wife divorced, 
their relationship is over. Um, without any children, they didn't have any children. A fourth expedition would occur, uh, two trips actually, between 1898 and 1902. Does Peary ruin anything else? Uh, well, I mean, if you don't like him, there's a hilarious turn of events. It's my favourite part <laughs> of this story. Because um, I couldn't quite believe it when I, when I read it. It's karmic irony, it really is. <laughs> but so much archaeology, like historians in this, this time, caused so much damage yeah. and it's it's like if there's a great book called i can't remember what it's called but it's about uh, heads and the significance of decapitation throughout history wow and, that's a reading oh it's through. a great book uh, i'll see if i can find what it's called because it's fascinating but it's got a great sort of chapter on the um the boom in the industry of shrunken heads and a lot of them were fake because why wouldn't they be but shrunken heads were originally it's isn't it um like a tribal thing yeah and it was considered as like a trophy um from these wars that they would have between tribes but they were kind of accepted as like they knew that people were going to come at some point and sort of take some people because these were the, these were kind of religious things but then when the white people arrived and were like, look at these quaint <sighs> shrunken heads and suddenly were trading them guns, right. lots more people being killed, lots more people being, you know, like scalped for You're upsetting an heads. entire sort of cultural Completely. system in ways you don't even realise. And like the, the ritual significance of them completely was just upended because now it was just we need more scalps to sell to the white man because he's going to give us stuff. And it just completely destroyed this cultural tradition, which like, I'm not saying it's a great cultural tradition to have, to scalp people, but it completely destroyed the kind of significance that this had to their culture. And it completely, it, it was just kind of hideous to, yeah. to this group, to these groups that it, and it, it just, just so much of this and it makes me so mad. <laughs> But Sorry. As I said, he kind of, in an unexpected way, um, <laughs> he's going to uh, get some karma. Um, Good. So they sail off again on a, another expedition in 1898, which would also be very difficult and not end how they intended. Um, a combination of um, glaciers, deadly arctic storms and treacherous cliffs. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> treacherous what? Griffs, treacherous cliffs. <laughs> treacherous cliffs and crevasses took the lives of um... I was like is that a word I don't know <laughs> it's an arctic word it's <laughs> so um, six of their Inuit crew members would um, die on this expedition and Peary would lose most of his toes to frostbite so already there you go some God. Um Tech Henson's craftsmanship and uh, survival skills would keep them alive and help them survive. Uh, he's driving dogs, he's uh, helping them stay warm and building shelters in a sort of really dicey situation. And eventually they were forced to turn back early, so they really didn't get much from uh, that. P. 
Peary would, once he came back, claim to have been the first to set eyes on this um, island called Axel Heiberg Island, which is uh, actually Canada's seventh largest island. I mean, that's an achievement, isn't it? Who wants to be seven largest anything? <laughs> or seventh of anything? But um, it's the beginning of a track record of quite murky claims for Peary. Okay, he is very distinguished and it's not that people don't believe him but, he but was he's always trying to get points on the board he's always got a sort of mysterious lack of tangible information um despite the fact he's, he's got all these people with within my eyes <laughs> and i guess it's sort of telling that today many of or most of his claims to be the first here or the first to see this are disputed in some way yeah so now it Today, we know that a Norwegian explorer actually was the first to have discovered the island. Uh, but he was praised and people believed him for doing it for, for a time when he came back. You know, he had mapped um, several uncharted areas and he was promoted to Navy commander when he got back from uh, this trip. He had lost all of his toes, though, um, <laughs> which well, is, is not good. Say it's so, a fair price for stealing people's important shit. Um, Matthew Henson, obviously, along for the ride. Um, a big part of helping them come back from this alive. In the press reports, he was a sort of referred to as the valet. <laughs> Helper man. man. Servant. Yeah, and that, he received very little else, really, as, as far as um, praise or contributions. Um, they were off again in 1902, and they got a fastest north record for the Western Hemisphere and explored north of Canada's Ellesmere Island. So, uh, they, you know, uh, tragedies and um, triumphs. It's yeah. difficult out there. It's a challenging world. So, um, their penultimate trip to the Arctic, which their sixth trip to the Arctic together, Peary 